Hi, this is Bill Woods, and I want to tell you how excited I am to see what's happening at the Asbury University in Kentucky today. There's a revival that's going on that started on February the 8th and is still going today on February the 17th. Been going 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Praise God. We've been praying a long time for revival, and I hope this is something that will take effect, that will spread to other universities, that will spread to churches, that will spread across our land, and will change our culture back to what God wants us to be. Revival is so important, and we have been so dead for so long, and I've been praying that God would somehow move upon our people before the end uh, of time, that there would be one last great harvest, one last revival, one last revival. Uh, I read in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, about a story that I think is very important about Isaiah's call. Uzziah was probably Judah's greatest king. He reigned for 42 years. During most of his reign, he obeyed God, and Judah experienced great prosperity. But one day, King Uzziah overstepped his bounds and committed the sin of presumption. He was king and not a priest. And God said the priests were the only ones that could offer sacrifices on the altar. But Uzziah tried to make sacrifices upon God's holy altar, and he profaned the holiness of the temple. God was angry and struck Uzziah with leprosy. The king had to withdraw from the throne and, and go into seclu seclusion. He died from leprosy. This was an extremely hard time for Judah, a time of crises and transition. Uzziah's death came as a disillusionment to the young prophet Isaiah. Isaiah's hopes for the nation and his career were shattered. This was a crisis in his ministry. Isaiah had lived through the last 20 years of Uzziah's reign. There was an appearance of outward material prosperity, but there was much inward corruption. Isaiah didn't know what lay ahead for his people. He didn't know what this might do to his career. He felt impending judgment was about to fall from God. And as he was praying in the temple about how all this, his earthly hopes had been destroyed, he had a vision of God and the unseen spiritual world. He found that even though his king was dead, his God was still alive and was still in control. In Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 9, it says, In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. 
He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. I believe Isaiah experienced revival in his own life that day. We do well to experience such revival today in our lives. We're living at a very crucial point in our history. We're either going to have a revival or we're going to have a funeral for the church. We have been longing and praying to see a genuine heaven-sent Holy Ghost revival. It seems that God is answering that prayer, like I said, at Asbury University right now. And I want to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. To have revival, we must prepare our hearts to accept what God has for us. Isaiah is, a, is the illustration. He, he got ready. He was ready. The first thing that when he had this vision in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he says, Woe! And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah had felt comfortable up until this point. He was doing a fairly good job at prophesying, he was living better than the average prophet of his day. He was like a lot of us. We compare ourselves to those who make us look better. I remember when I was pastoring in Stevenson, Washington, I had a very rare, unique situation. My, my guitar player weighed over 400 pounds. The person on the, the lady that played the organ weighed, uh, oh, 375 to 400 pounds. And I mean, I look pretty slim up there on the platform. I look pretty good. You know, we never compare ourselves to someone who makes us look bad. We always try to compare ourselves so that we come out looking the best. Well, suddenly Isaiah saw God in all his holiness and realized how badly he was missing the mark. He saw his own sinful condition. Suddenly his own righteousness didn't seem all that impressive. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a, a filthy garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We must come to that place in our lives, too. We, we need to quit making excuses and rationalizing away what God wants us to do in our lives. When we compare ourselves to the world, we look pretty good. But have we let God show us what we should be, what he wants us to be? I'm concerned about how often Christians proclaim that they're living holy lives, but they're incorporated into their lives language and habits that they'd never have thought of 20 years ago. People say, well, times have changed, but I want you to know God has not changed. Is this true or is it just that bad now looks good because worse has shown up? Don't compare your life to the standards of this world. The world is becoming ever increasingly sinful. 
Compare your life to God and see how you match up to His holiness. Stop making excuses and let God do His work in your life. It's time God's church, God's Christians, get back to preaching and living holiness lives. We need a genuine, heaven-sent, God-breathed revival. You know, the, the Methodist Church, uh, John Wesley, when he started the Methodist Church, it was in the midst of the revival. They would have, if they would have been faithful to their message, they'd never have been a need for a Wesleyan church, a Nazarene church, any of the other churches that are uh, supposed to be holiness churches. There would have been no need for any of them to pick up the mantle. But, and I want to say this, unless we get back to God, we're going to lose our charter. We, he will raise up another body of people to praise and glorify his name. Where are you in God's expectations? Where are you as far as prayer or Bible reading or your tithe or your witness? Isaiah found that he was undone. It says, Lo, Isaiah 6, 7, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. To Isaiah, the situation seemed hopeless. How could he ever find help for his sinful condition? He found God could care for it as soon as he quit trying to excuse it or explain it away or ignore the sin that was in his life. He needed to surrender his will completely to God's will. As soon as he confessed it, God cleansed it. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A seraphim came and purged Isaiah's lips and heart. He cleansed him at the point of his greatest need. God now made him a vessel fit for God's service. I want you to notice God does not use polluted vessels. God wants pure vessels to carry his message. What Isaiah experienced wasn't done through some man-made device. This was total cleansing by God when Isaiah surrendered his life to him. God then said, go, Isaiah 6, 9, and he said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. God commissioned Isaiah to do a great work. God sent him only after he had been made ready by God for the work that had to be done, only after he'd spent time with God and his heart was now burning with divine compassion. This wasn't something Isaiah had to work up in himself. He volunteered for service because God had changed his life and he wanted to glorify God. <coughs> Excuse me. Revival had come to Isaiah's spirit and oh, what a difference it had made. True revival will make a difference in our lives and actions too, both as a church and as individuals. We so desperately need revival today. We want revival and all the blessings it will bring, we say, but why does it tarry? Because it is so highly commercialized. Somewhere we've gotten the idea that man brings revival. 
You know, there are a few big guns running around the country saying that they can bring revival. They're demanding high salaries. And we feel we can't have revival unless we can get one of them to come and preach for us. Or there is the electric church, the church online and on TV and, and the preaching that's done there. And these people think, you know, oh, we're doing such a great job. Well, don't misunderstand. I wouldn't mind having a, a big name if God directs that way, but a man cannot bring revival. God brings revival. God works as we prepare our hearts for him to move in on us and to use us for his glory. I mean, we could have at one time maybe got Billy Graham, now Franklin Graham in here, and not have revival if we were not ready. We had a wonderful revival with an evangelist in Pullman, Washington. Then I had him come to Cheyenne, hoping for a repeat of what had happened in Pullman. By this time, the man had decided he was able to preach revival. He was more worried about what he could get paid or what we were going to pay him and how much his schedule would demand of him while he was there. and Would he get enough rest? And I want you to know that revival was a dud. We'll have revival as we break up the fallow ground of our hearts. Because of the cheapening of the gospel, we no longer have revival. I mean, you know, we have dark sanctuaries and hymns to the rock beat and familiaration with God and, and you know, have movie star testimonies and all this. God said, come out from among and be separate. Second Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. You know, I heard one time, years ago about a gal that uh, decided she was called to do something for the Lord and and she, believe it or not, was working in a bar as a stripper trying to raise the money to pay for her seminary. Now, I don't believe God was going to use her greatly there. I know that there are others like Amy Grant who is compromised and, and others who are, are at one time had pretty good uh, followings but have let down on their convictions and God is no longer able to use them like he once did. I believe instead of trying to bring the gospel down to where the world is comfortable, that we should be inviting the world to have a higher standard and be living on that standard ourselves. Remember, I, we, we want to have the world come up to the standard of holiness, not have our church or ourselves go down to the standards of the world. Remember Uzziah and his sin of presumption. Because we don't have revival because of carelessness. Too often we rush people away from the altar before they've prayed through. We talk them into experience that they don't really have. Well, don't you think that God really has forgiven you? Well, haven't you asked God to forgive you? Well, don't you think he answered that prayer? We make excuses why they've fallen short. and We tell them that God understands I had a youth worker in my church in Cheyenne that every time a teenager would come to the altar to pray, she would talk them out of it. She said, well, God understands what you're going through. God knows about all these pressures and all. They get up and they did not have victory. 
Too many people who think they have a testimony today are, are just head Christians. They just have it in their heads, but not in their heart. We need to be heart Christians, transformed to the glory of God. God help us to take more care at this point. I mean, it's kind of like I preached before about vaccinated Christians. A vaccination is you get a small dose of the real thing, hoping to be able to build up an immunity against the disease. Well, sometimes when people come to church or to the altar, they get a small dose of Christianity that keeps them from getting the real thing. I want the real thing. You know, no wonder we don't see revival. Too many are still dead in trespasses and sins, trying to proclaim something they do not have. The altar is a dying place. You know, in the Old Testament, when an animal was brought to the altar, it died there. It's, now we, we don't kill people at the altars anymore. Let a person, though, come to a place where they die out to self and come alive unto God. Then we don't have revival because of fear. We're too tight-lipped about sin, about the claims of Christ and, and the false religions of our day. Sometimes we let people believe we think that there might be more than one name whereby they might be saved. But I want you to know the only name that will get us to heaven is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except by me. In Acts 4, 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We are afraid to stand for what we claim we believe. We might make somebody mad or hurt somebody's feelings. Isaiah wasn't afraid to speak God's word, even though it meant his life. You remember that he was finally martyred. He was put into a hollow log and sawed in half. Elijah wasn't afraid to take a stand against God's enemies. Look at him on Mount Carmel when he faced down the prophets of Baal and uh, the fire came down from heaven and burned up the sacrifices. What a tremendous story that is. Peter and Paul spoke boldly for their convictions. It's time Christians begin to speak out in the name of Jesus Christ. It's time we take a stand against sin and false religions rather than try to coexist so that we won't make waves. If we're going to see revival, we're going to have to stand up for Jesus. John Wesley saw the doors of the English churches close against him because they didn't like what he had to preach. But Wesley feared neither men or devils. If you read his history, he went out and he stood on his father's grave and preached there in the cemetery, starting a work that, that changed the world. Whitfield was belittled and made fun of in his day. Spurgeon faced mockery and ridicule. In the New Testament, Christians were stoned, beaten, and suffered every kind of cruel punishment. How is it then, since sin and sinners haven't changed, that preachers and churches and Christians no longer raise the wrath of hell, no longer get Satan really battling against us? Why do we seem so boring? Why is our message so uh, mundane? Why isn't Satan afraid of us any longer? 
we can have riots without revival, but in the light of the Bible and the church history, where can we have revival without riots? It's time we grab a hold of the old devil's tail and do a little twisting. Rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus Christ for what he is doing. When revival hits, the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Because we're, having, we're, we're not having revival because of our lack of urgency in prayer. Oh, we talk about prayer, but we do so little real praying. Uh, I remember when I was in Cheyenne in the Church of the Nazarene, the Grace Church of the Nazarene, the Rocky Mountain District Superintendent called for a day of prayer and fasting. And he said, you know, prayer moves the hand of God. And I, I that day I was fasting. I had to get a hold of him for something. And I knew that he was, I had called his office. They said he was at Cheyenne First Church of the Nazarene. I was pastoring Grace Church of the Nazarene. So I called over to First Church. And I said, I'd like to talk to the district superintendent. The pastor's wife said, well, just a minute. He's eating right now. And I said, he's what? He's called a day of fasting and he's eating. I, I tell you what, it, it didn't. It seemed to be something that was out of. Uh, con I mean, it should not have been. Prayer moves the hand of God. Prayer will align our lives with God's will. Prayer brings the power we need to see miracles happen. We know that God was able to use Elijah because Elijah prayed. James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We've not learned to wrestle with God in prayer like they used to, like we need to. Most of us haven't even worked up a sweat in our souls in prayer. The only power that God yields to is the power of prayer. Oh, we write about prayer, but we don't do it. We flaunt our gifts. And by the way, we shouldn't be seeking gifts. We should be seeking the giver and let him decide what gifts he wants to give us, whether it's natural or spiritual. We, we air our views. We correct each other's doctrine. We argue about things. But who is storming hell's stronghold with prayer? Who is saying to the devil, that's as far as you're going to go, buddy. In the name of Jesus Christ, I take authority over you. Who denies themselves food or good company or good rest so hell will be less populated and demons less productive and souls saved for God's kingdom? Who? Who is doing that? God help us to wake up to what we must do before it gets any later. Because we steal the glory that belongs to God, we don't have revival. John said in 541, I do not receive glory from people. In verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
away with all this taking credit for God's working. You know, people say, well, I prayed for revival. Look what's happening. Or my church reaches more people than your church is reaching. Or I'm the best soul winner. I'm the finest speaker. All of that is fluff. What we need is God's Holy Spirit to come and empower us. Revival comes from God. Not one of us is worthy by our own merit to be used of God. Only as he transforms our lives like he did Isaiah's will we see revival. Whoa, lo, go. Is God trying to teach you something today? I believe there's awakening happening today, that there's a revival that's starting, and I pray, God, that it will spread, spread across our land, spread to Washington, D.C., get into the Congress, get into the White House, get into the Supreme Court. I think we need to ask God to make us part of what God is doing for his glory, that we might glorify him. Dear Father, we pray that we will see revival. We pray, Lord, for our lost loved ones that are on their way to hell, that somehow we will have enough fervor that we will give them the message they need and we will confront them in the name of Jesus Christ and see your spirit move across their lives and our lives. Use this for your honor and glory. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, if you want to get a hold of me, you know how to do it. You can write me at Box 4031, Sun Valley, Arizona, 86029. You can send me uh, uh, something by email, in the lowercase R-E-V-W-M-W-W-O-O-D-S at gmail.com. If you really need to talk, my phone number is 623-845-2741. Praise God for what he's doing. I'm going to just continue to pray for revival. I hope that you'll join me too. In Jesus' name.